Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Greg from the Young Black and Bothered podcast. We are joined this week by a special, special person, Miss Erica Rhodes. How are you? I'm doing amazing. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. That is awesome. That is like absolutely amazing. Um, we actually met in like weird circumstances on Clubhouse. And um, I personally learned so much from you, so much so that I had to invite my two brothers, my best friends in the world, you know, my podcast co-host on the show, because as educators, they are the best people to ever talk when it comes to education. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves and then we can go into it. Sounds good. Oh, I guess I'll go. Okay. Um, everyone else, you should know who the, the, this voice is. This is Q, but I'm going to keep it professional today. I'm Quentin Harrison. Uh, and I, y'all know, I have been an educator for 11 years. I'm currently in grad school, um, to get my MED in educational leadership. Um, so I am definitely excited to talk to someone who is passionate about education. Um, so welcome. Okay, this is my turn. Um, my name is Eric Price II. Uh, I have a master's in uh, higher education administration from Georgetown. I've been working in higher education for four years. I've also been working on the higher ed policy side, which is why I'm exactly had this conversation, um, working on Capitol Hill, advocating on behalf primarily of HBCUs, but um, paying attention to how all policies are happening because K-12 impacts higher ed and vice versa. Uh, so yeah, just like Q, we we both been in education for some time now, so this is going to be a good conversation. Yes, it is. Um, Erica, again, I want to say thank you beforehand. I'm going to thank you throughout the show. Um, I was really interested in the fact that one, you're in probably the best state of California, and you are actually running to represent the 30th congressional district in 2022. Um. We have to move. I told my wife we might have to move. You know, when you win, we are moving there because. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) I didn't know you were going to move to the districts. (laughs) Well, we have to. Um, We basically have friends in San uh, San Diego and we said we're coming out there. So their family's going out and we're considering it in the next three years. So hopefully we're out there. San Diego is such a beautiful city. It's such a it is such but, a beautiful city. But my district is actually Los Angeles in the Valley. So I w- I'm running to represent San Fernando Valley, which is um, near Hollywood for those, that, yeah, <laughs> for those that are not familiar. And so it's um, a really, it's a wonderful area. It's a very family oriented. So you'd fit right in. But um, one of the reasons why I decided to run is I'm I, just so everyone knows. Um, so my name is Erica and I'm an elementary school teacher and I actually have a master's in curriculum instruction and I was LA Clippers teacher of the year. So I'm very invested in um, education. But when COVID happened, we saw disparities in our education system with kids not having access to technology and internet and that's an injustice. And so you kind of have these these moments where like I can complain, I can get frustrated or you know what? I can run and 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 advocate at the federal level 
because I believe every child, especially in 2020, 2021, should have access to computer and internet service. And if we're going to have kids do distance learning, they should be able to have those resources in, in order to do so. And what we saw during COVID is that over a million kids did not have technology. They did not have internet access. And what that does is it throws a dynamite in the achievement gap, especially when it comes to our low-income students of color. And then in my district in California, it's not just my district, but in California, we had 10,000 college students that didn't even have access to computers. And so that is one of the reasons why I'm running and for obvious other reasons. But if we don't change our education system and modernize it, I think it's going to be the downfall of our country because an uneducated population is quite dangerous. Well, we saw we saw the example of an uneducated populist on January 6th. Um, So that should be enough for everyone to, hey. We need to reform it and make it better. You know, I actually, I find it interesting that we're having this conversation because you represent an area of California that even in your congressional district is quite similar to where we're from, which is Washington, D.C. Similar amount of people, just around 700,000 or so people within your district. The only difference is, is that your district um, is still very heavily white for the majority of uh, minority group, I don't want to, if you will, would be considered Hispanic, right? So would you happen to, would you say that for the many of the people who did not have access to technology, whether it be computers, internet, things of that nature, would you say that it was mostly impacting those who represented minorities inside inside the district? I think it impacted kids that are are living at or below the poverty, which is a mixed group. It's I, mm. I wouldn't say it's specifically um, just our Hispanic population. I think sometimes we forget that people, especially kids that are impoverished, they come from all backgrounds. Yeah. And and what's unique about my district, because you know the census happens every 10 years. So over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot more African Americans move into my district. And, you know, all ethnicities have, you know, have come to my district. And we actually have a very high deaf community in my district. So wow. it's very, it's actually very diverse. I want to say if it unless it's changed, the last time we researched it is that we have the largest deaf community in the country. And I want to see New York is second. And um, but we could talk about that in uh, later. But so I think it was a it was a have and have not situation. So what's my district is either you're really well off or you're not. And so mm. that's a problem. And and so with the with the lack of resources, it really was a poverty issue, an access issue, and not much as I wouldn't really just pin it on race. And we also have a very high foster care um, problem in California. We have, I want to say the last time we checked the numbers, 88,000 kids in foster care in California. Wow. We have a massive foster care to homeless problem. It's, it's, so it's on my platform because it's something that we don't talk about. And so when we talk about disparities and when we talk about poverty, we have to talk about it from multiple lenses because it hits in different ways. Yeah, I, I didn't want to jump in for a cue. Um, 
No, I, I, I actually, when I knew we were having this conversation, I was like, let me go read, right? Because, mm-hmm. it, I, I, like I say, I saw a lot of parallels here in, in the Washington, D.C. area. You know, it's, it was a joke that we, it's a joke, but it's not funny, if you will. Uh, we've said a lot of times there's more dog, there's more animal shelters than there are homeless shelters, uh, yeah. which causes an issue here. So you have more than eight, you have at least 8,000 people who are homeless in the San Fernando, Fernando count, uh, Valley, right? Which is the area you're talking about. Did you say 8,000? Uh, over 8,000. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was to say we have more, more than that. And with COVID, um, it's actually increased. Literally today, I went to go look at, um, this new project that they are implementing called the Little Houses. And basically, it's an attempt to try to house people. And what's ironic is something that I personally do is I bring hygiene kits and food to um, certain encampments in my district weekly. And I'm literally on this tour and people that I actually bring like hygiene kits to were in this little housing community. But oh, wow. um, but the 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 amount of people experiencing homelessness is, is quite extensive and the numbers are just skyrocketing because of COVID mm-hmm. with the unemployment rates and, you know, the, the lack of getting relief to people. It's been catastrophic. Um, I'm glad you homelessness. I, I had watched, this was early in the beginning, like the beginning of the, of the pandemic, the, the CBS news special on um, homelessness in, in Los Angeles, and it was frightening. Um, so yeah, right. and, and that all ties in, and, and that definitely ties into education as well. We're never going to address, we're never going to make our schools better if we don't, if we don't address and tackle the number one main issue, um, and which is, which is poverty. Um, and you're absolutely right. The, the pandemic has open a Pandora's box of everything that's wrong with the system. Yeah. The digital divide. Food, the digital food, divide. food and housing insecurity. Just all, all of that. And, 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 and when, you know, when we do return back to the classroom, we're going to have a, we're going to have a mental health crisis too. Our kids have, you know, our kids have, have, have experienced so much trauma over this past year. Um, Let's get into that. <laughs> let's, let's segue into let's, that. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's start with like kindergarten. Right. Like, <laughs> right. And, and it's like, every grade level is impacted in, in different ways. So we could start from like preschool and literally work our way up if you want. Does that make it easier? <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. Um, well, I'm on the belief in this. You know, I spent, I've spent the majority of my career in early childhood, so pre K and first grade. Um, especially for kindergarten through second grade. But as a whole, because these kids have not been in a classroom in over a year, and we're talking, and not just, not just at the early childhood level, also talking about in the height at, you know, middle and at all levels, even in college, they have to learn how to be students. They're going to have to learn how to be students in a building again. It's almost going to be like, we got to reprogram them just like they, just like when they come, when they come in, in preschool and pre-kindergarten on how to be a student, that's going to be the big, that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. You know, some friends of mine say, Harrison, it's not going to be that hard. Yes, it is. You, you know, our kids have been learning. Those who have access, got a caveat there. Those who had access to 
to the instruction. You're at home. It's like I'm right now. I'm watching. I'm looking at the game. The refrigerator is right. It's like 10 feet away. That's, you know. And excuse me, I'm going off on a tangent, but it, it, it's it, it's. So it, it's so real, and and this is what this is, you know educators are going to have to face this. Some are facing it now. Those who have returned to um, to in person learning, but when when the kids come back and the class sizes are back to being 25, 30, 35 students, but these kids haven't been home for a full year, it's going to be a it's going to be crazy. I think it's going to be I crazy. Think, like I'm just going to plug in on kindergarten for a minute because I think there's a lot of things going on with kindergarten and I also want to just touch on a positive aspect of this okay so you have kids that their first introduction to school was on a computer so that means that kids learned how to use technology before they, they can count before they can read before they can write and so Take that, just take that concept and just pause it for one second. So let's put it here. We're in a rapidly growing technological society. So AI and technology accelerated by two or three years. And so when I say it's urgent that we update and modernize our curriculum, I, I really mean that because the jobs that these five year olds, five and six year olds are going to have are going to be somewhere related to technology and AI. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I think this is an opportunity to modernize our curriculum. Like, for example, I I did say this in in a meeting with some kindergarten teachers. I was like, why? Like, they're like, the kids are not able to learn the alphabet. They're so distracted. All the things that you just mentioned with the, with the TV, the fridge, whatever background was, that's if they have someone supporting them at home. I literally threw out, I was like, why aren't we having them make an app? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we having them learn to program something or use a 3D printer? You know, like, why are we not use, coupling that with the alphabet right now? And they looked at me like, Erica, you are crazy. I was like, it's not that I'm crazy, but that's the reality is that we need to make sure that kids have like actual skills that will leverage them in the workforce as, as they get older. Mm-hmm. And so... And it sounds, it it sounds like such a crazy thing to say, but like, look at Silicon Valley and where they're investing all of their money in technology, billions and billions of dollars. Like right now, hypersonic flight is something that they're focusing heavily on to change the future of travel. So we know that in 10 to 15 years, they're creating, um, um, aircraft that will get you from San Francisco to Tokyo in two hours. Then to me, that leaves layers of jobs that require different skill sets. And mm-hmm. so when I say there's an urgency around modernizing our curriculum, it's that stuff, right? So we know that they know how to use a computer or like get on a computer. So that needs to be coupled with like integrating it with technology or whatnot. Like I think Apple to make an app is $99. Yep. Right. Yes. And so if you hire someone that's like in detect that knows tech, they could teach the kids on Zoom how to make a, a, like an app or how to code while they're doing it. And that, and that to me, like that's, 
how I think of it. It's like, I know it sounds a little bit futuristic, but I feel like that's the way that we have, the, the kids are going to learn because one, that's what engages them. And so if you take, so like kindergartners start getting like thinking like techno, like technological, and we know those are the jobs of the future. I think that sets them on a path to be able to gain, be gainfully employed when, when they're down the road. So, so I know that sounds so crazy. Um, and it's not to replace literacy. It's not to replace math, but it's to integrate it into something that, that is what it is. We have, and I think we can't just go back to what we did 20, 30 years ago, because it's never going to be like that again. You know, when I, I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off. No, I was just going to say, so we know that our black and brown students in low income areas, they already have like this, there's already that just, you know, that, that um, setback. And we want our kids of color to be competitive. Then we need innovative, robust, creative ideas in order to, to close that gap so they can be able to be in position to generate wealth and all the things that we know the black community, brown communities need. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm just thinking like as just kindergarten, right. And so so I I just feel like this is also an opportunity to, to take on some new, new ideas. And I don't really know many kids that are not mesmerized by space. And we just put um, perseverance on Mars, right? So I just feel like this is an opportunity to, since we saw that the system doesn't work, well, let's scrap it and do something different. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like my thinking. With you know what? <laughs> I, I think you hit everything on the, on, the, on the nail right there. I have been saying since, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been saying since this started that we, there's time where we get that one chance to make things better. We had that chance in 2001 and blew it because we put the emphasis on testing and high and, and you know, and all of that. This is the perfect opportunity and we may not get this again in our lifetimes to fundamentally change how we educate our kids. Jeffrey Canada in 2000, in a TED talk in 2013 said this was coming. We had an eight-year head start and we did nothing with it. Now, you're absolutely right. How can you expect kids to go back into the classroom when they've been learning by computer, on a tablet, on their phone for those who didn't have a, a Chromebook. So they need to go back into the, the classroom and build a computer. Absolutely. Build Absolutely. robots. Like that's what they need to be doing. And couple that with now you just built this computer. Now let's write about it. Like like with kindergarten, a, 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 like a unit that often is used as how-tos. So now you've built a computer or like an app, like a very basic app. And when I say this, like very, very basic, and there are basic apps. That, that are for students. That's when I, so I say, don't, I want people to think like I'm this like talking like high tech. <laughs> I'm talking like the, the basic ones. Yeah. Now, how did you guys do that? Like, how did you build your app? Well, the first thing I did is this. And then the second thing. So now they have the writing. Okay, now let's type it. So you wrote it out. Now let's type it up and whatever. And then how can we market this? Now, how can we market it and teach them how to be entrepreneurs? Well, how do you, and then that can lead into patenting. Well, you guys, like building vocabulary, like to patent the idea is this, and you can teach that to kindergartners. You want to know why? 
because we know little kids can learn more languages when they're younger. And so we can maybe use this as an opportunity to teach them the language of coding, the language of technology, the mm-hmm. language of financial literacy, the language of being an entrepreneur. Having, and, and that could be a whole unit. And so to go back to why I'm running, it's I, like, I love how you said it's an opportunity. And so instead of continuing to fail our students year after year after year, have an influx of poverty and the wealth gap and the inequality, all this stuff, we need to start closing it through education. And the only way that I see education working in the next 15, 20 years is with new ideas, new approaches. And, and I honestly feel if most kids, if they're going to school and they're using a 3D printer or they're building something, they're going to be excited to go. Right. And, oh, you know, and then the management, oh, you know, if you guys don't sit quietly, you can't build it. And then they're going to, that's, and then the, to the piece, now they're going to behave and learn how to be in school because they really want to build that robot. You can like, you can, there's all these solar kits now. Now you're talking about environment. Then maybe the next environment, the next one is environment, like solar cars. Right. And so I just say all that to say is don't sleep on kindergartners. And let's, and let's not, let's not take this, this injustice and, and have it be to waste. That is what so, I'm fighting for. So I, I, I love everything that you've said. I think because I come from a higher education background and a lot of that is <laughs> job development, workforce development, um, a heavy part of that deals with also with policy and understanding funding and what that looks like. So my question, based upon everything we just you just kind of went over, and I think all oh, that's great. Uh, Pay for it. Well, not 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 even necessarily the conversation about paying for, it, right? Because you know we we already know that there's a flawed system as is where uh, education funding is directly tied into property value, right? We already know that's an issue. Um, not necessarily paying for it only. How do we end up preparing the current teachers of those kindergartners and those elementary school kids to be able to teach those things when, because many of them are probably pushing back because they don't understand these things themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, what is your perspective from that angle in preparing those, those, those teachers? I do think that teacher buy-in is important. Um, I think sometimes not all teachers but sometimes, it, you know, it's like you have a rhythm, you know how to do things, so it's hard to get out of your comfort zone. But I think most teachers now realize that the system doesn't work, that there are disparities, and that we're going to need new ideas and approaches to be able to rectify this. So I think this is an, like just knowing that it's evident, right? Um, I think it's going to be easier to get teachers on board, but that's why we have professional development. You know, we can get, we can maybe try to see, right? If we can try to do, get people in tech to, to participate. We have a whole military that is tech. Maybe that that could be a stipend or an opportunity. I don't know. I'm just like, now that you said that, I'm just like throwing out ideas. But I'll tell you one way we could pay for some of this is so in California, we spend $16 million a year on police settlements. Oh, wow. So when there's injustices or like there's discrepancies with policing to settle these cases, on average, we spend $16 million. I would much rather that money 
we change the culture of policing, I'd rather invest that money into our young people. Mm. So that's one way we could pay for it is change the culture of policing and end qualified immunity. So we don't have to worry about these settlements. We could just remove people that are not fit to serve our communities and invest it in our young people. That's one way we could pay for it. You know, I'm glad and you I brought that up. The, oh, sorry. I, no, I was, no, no, no. I didn't want to. I'm sorry. I didn't want to stop, stop your thunder. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, what does the school to prison pipeline look like in the Inland Empire or, or San Bernardino uh, Commercial District uh, 30, uh, where you represent? So, like, so every pocket of California has, um, you know, different. Um, situations. Um, I look at it like I'm a preventive, like I like to prevent problems. And what I've seen, and from my, this is my experience, kids that are not engaged in the school, like the, in the academia world, and they don't feel like there's a reason for going to school tend to be the ones that are most at risk. And then just, we know the statistic, one out of three black boys ends up in prison, right? So my whole thing is let's make school meaningful and purposeful. And so there's a clear path, a clear direction as to where my life is going. Like if I were, you know, like at risk youth, right? So like life skill courses, not everyone, and maybe you'll push back on this, but I don't think everyone is fit for college or should go to college. I don't, I don't, I don't think college is for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I certainly do not, I definitely don't like the idea of someone getting an art degree and then leaving with a hundred thousand dollars student loan debt when their job is not going to be able to help. Like they can't pay that off with going into that field. Right. Or it'll take forever. And it's just all by chance. Right. If you get that break. So, so I think we have to like, so that's why I said we start with kindergarten work early up. But um, so I think it would school make sense and meaningful and that we're guiding kids to their passion and their interests. I think that is what closes the school to prison pipeline that we have counselors, mental health workers, nurses, um, hands on learning field trip opportunities. We know the study shows when kids are able to go outside of the classroom, they see the world differently, you know, and, and that goes for students of privilege and for students that that you know live in um, below the poverty line. We they ha- we have to get kids out of the classroom. I honestly, I take my students on a field trip biweekly, biweekly, wow. and so I know that that's in, that. And I have guest speakers monthly, and I do almost ninety nine point nine percent of my lessons are hands on. Even in COVID, I was I had the kids turn their kitchen into a chemistry lab, and they did food chemistry. Right. So I'm a huge believer in hands on. And I do think life skills. Like I think kids, I think a lot of young black boys in particular love to learn about money. Yeah. And so I think it's a pocket to teach them about investing the stock market and all of that kind of stuff. There's all these really cool programs for like finance. And it's like, they're, they're like these like, these like programs where it's like you it feels like you are really investing right and so i think that is how we we engage if you want to make money i'm gonna show you how to make money and then look at GameStop. going back to technology right these are kids like organized on reddit and they beat a system 
So I think we sometimes underestimate the intelligence of young people. We don't elevate young people. We don't hear what they what they care about. That's a problem. You know, I, I even on my campaign, I have a, a whole part, like a whole section called Kids Have a Voice Too. And it's specifically mm-hmm. to empower kid voices, right? So I think that's, to answer your question, I think that's how we close the school to prison pipeline. And for my um, district, there's no exact number how many kids like, literally have left high school and went to prison, I think it gets muffled in like the general statistic of one in three. Right. So um, I I do think that we need it. School needs to look different. I think also infrastructure, a school shouldn't look like a prison. Yeah. A school should not look like a prison. A lot of them do. That, that just infuriates me. Actually, when schools look don't look warm and exciting, especially when you go into like a private school campus. Mm-hmm. As somebody who had the relative privilege, right, uh, of everybody on this call, I'm the only one who never stepped foot inside of a public school mm-hmm. um, until I went to college. So, like I said, privilege is never different perspective. But I had the opportunity to work with people and. <laughs> cut school every now and again and go visit other schools with my stepbrother and things of that nature to see what that was like. And even then I understood the difference. Uh, I'm glad you brought up money because not from a, from a financing education standpoint, um, universal basic income, which mm-hmm. is, uh, is a highly contested thing, right? Um, you know, there's many people who speak about what a democracy is, what a fascist society is, what socialism is, who don't know any idea what any of those terms really mean. Uh, so for you, the importance of universal basic income and how that would benefit the people that you're working for. Can you just speak a little bit on that? Oh, I can. Because <laughs> I'm a huge advocate for giving people money. Um, so just some context. During the Democratic primary, I was a huge Andrew Yang supporter. I went to Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, all over California, campaigning for him. And he actually just came out publicly for me yesterday. Um, and so I have definitely the support. I was on his task force at the beginning of the of the pandemic. Um, and our goal was specifically, like, how do we um, uplift communities of color. And um, and during the campaign, he was going to do a town hall specifically addressing black issues. Right. So I'm I'm so I've been around him enough and I have deep respect for him. And I think that universal basic income is one of the best things that we can do at this point in time. And the way I look at universal basic income, it's like where capitalism doesn't start at zero. Mm-hmm. It ensures Everybody has their basic needs met. It allows for a stay-at-home mom to be compensated and validated or caregivers. It prevents poverty. It absolutely frees up people to make courageous decisions where you can be creative. You can um, take risks and not, if you fail, it's okay. You're not going to go lose everything you own over it, right? Because you because you can save it up. So it's 12, like essentially the way he, Andrew proposed it was a thousand a month, right? But there's different ways of, um, of, 
of like different like levels of UBI. You can do like 500 a month, 750. And what we saw with the direct cash payments is that it actually was very wildly popular. I personally don't know of anybody that gave their check back to the government. They liked it. I've seen it trending multiple times on Twitter. Like, when's our next check? You know, because it helps people. You know, look at Texas. Who got hit the hardest? Are underserved black and brown communities. They didn't have the capital to be able to go to the grocery store and stockpile. They couldn't, even when they had the warning, they weren't able to go to Home Depot and get flashlights because you, that takes money, right? So it prevents a lot of problems. But I want to zoom in on to um, a study. So the UBI lab actually did a study in Africa. And I, I want to say it was Kenya. I want to say it was Kenya, but I could be wrong, but it was Kenya. They, they basically took the three parts of the village. They gave one part of the village a current... Um, their current welfare program. Then they gave another part of the, the village a lump sum of money. And then they gave the third part of the village monthly payments. The part of the third part of the village that had the monthly payments were able to pull themselves out of poverty. They started businesses. Women were more independent and they were flourishing. In Mississippi, they gave UBI to um, like, I think five to 10 single black moms and the moms used that money to go back to school. They were able to afford childcare. If they're tired, they needed to tire, they were able to buy a new tire. And they were able to, you know, to, to take on new, um, like, uh, new career opportunities because they were able, they had the capital to make risks. And then I want to migrate to Stockton, California, where, um, the kids where the that population, a whole like city, got universal basic. I wasn't really a hundred fifty to a hundred people got it. And they also were able to um pull themselves out of poverty. In Canada, crime went down, obesity went down because they can afford healthier food. So I say all that to say when we look at human dignity. Mm. That this is that's what this this is what ignites is human dignity. Every single person deserves to live in dignity, and we're seeing that it's really about the have and the have-nots. And like the one percent, they're good, right? They're good during COVID. They made millions and billions of dollars, right? And then the the ninety nine percent lost everything. I went up and down. You know, a part of my district talking to small business owners and they're going under. So I just feel like we're, we, we don't take automation and technology, the advancement of automation and technology seriously. We're just going to see an influx of poverty. And I think that UBI is going to help prevent that. And just remember, everyone that watches this, it's expensive to be poor. Mm-hmm. It's expensive to be poor because you miss a bill, you get a fee. Yep. Right. Like it's just, just an example. You can't afford just to have those those fees, you know, increase or whatnot. Yep. So UBI is something we really need to take seriously and really put on a table. I plan on asking every single person that's in that in on the hill to get behind a universal basic income. And I will be pushing that like my life depends on it um, when I win. Yes. When you went, I'm very passionate about this. (laughs) I like the spirit. I like the spirit. But you know, you're absolutely right. Like the 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 one percent billionaires, they their wealth grew by what 
almost fifty billion dollars during this pandemic. I know that I, I may be a little off in that figure, but I'm probably in the ballpark. They have they've gotten better. Their pockets have gotten fatter. Their accounts have gotten they've added more zeros. But it, regular people like like us, we're struggling. We're struggling. Um. So I do think I think that we could have been out of this pandemic a lot faster um, if we did like every other country is doing like Canada and like the UK and giving people money to stay home. We wouldn't wouldn't be leading the world in deaths in cases if we did that. And because I think things should be rooted in, in numbers like actual data. 75% 75% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. We have more than half Americans working two, three jobs, still unable to get by. That's not a quality of life. Like your whole life, you work and you have nothing to show for it. I was reading a study that millennials don't even have retirement accounts set up. Nope. Right? And so when you look at that, we have to ask like, well, why is that? Oh, I'll tell you why. Well, because prices keep going up, but the, like people's work, the salary doesn't increase. So mm-hmm. it's like, like I know of a guy, I'm not going to say his name, but I know of a guy cause he, you would know who he is if I said his name, mm-hmm. but he was very wildly successful. Stop. He was, you know, he, his profession ended up not, you know, having the long haul. He had to get a working class job. He's been at that job for a really long time. Last year, his raise was a 25 cents, but his rent went up $150. Oh, wow. Wow. Right. So we, so we got to keep perspective here, mm-hmm. you know, and I think when we, when we look at how much money we spent on addressing homelessness, it's like almost like we can just give everybody money. Yeah. As much money, as much waste in our government, like if we were to audit the entire government, right, we would find so much money. Like I think it was like a senator, was it Ben Carson or something? He spent like thousands on a new office, mm-hmm. right? Uh, well, the, the former sec- the former secretary of HUD spent sixty thousand dollars on a, on to redecorate his office. Yes. So that's 60, uh, and, that's 60 uh, it, people that could have gotten a thousand dollars that are impoverished. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, like, wages, have been, yeah, wages, right. wages have been stagnant. Um, and the price of everything, rent, groceries, everything. Yeah. Up, up and up. So it, like, we're reaching a breaking point. And we know that's a that's a multivariate type issue, right? Because even when we're talking about, you know, of course, President Biden is now speaking about the fifteen dollar increase of minimum wage. You have a lot of people who are in that range. Let's say they're making between twenty two and forty dollars an hour. They are not going to see the increase in that how much they get paid on on a regular, and they may be living in an area where they're not going to get enough money to live. They still already don't make enough money to pay for the rent. Um, we're still talking about a lack of a luxury tax on the people that are making a lot of money that can help uh, support those people who who would really benefit on the on the opposite end, who are, who are paying the brunt of taxes, even though they're not they're making not the most money in the country. Are so tax? Are you talking about the wealth tax? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I, I call it luxury tax. So I think it basketball terms too much. <laughs> um, okay. But yes. 
But you know what? To, to, well, to, the, to piggyback on that, there's no, potential. Like, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was saying just to, to piggyback on, on on that. That's why, like this plan, and taking the child tax, um, the child child tax credit, and making it like making it monthly, and paying people monthly, forty million children can be pulled out of poverty with that. Forty million. Well, I, I don't know if that, I don't know if I'm quoting so, that directly, but that that that's an easy way. I think help. I I think this is something very important to say. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to use the example of the stimulus check, right? And so mm-hmm. the GOP wanted to be a fifty thousand dollar threshold. So if you make fifty thousand or less, then you would get the next stimulus check. Um, Democrats pushed back, no, seventy five thousand, and I'm like. Why the fuck are we means testing? Because it costs so much money to sift through who gets it, who doesn't get it. And it's like, that costs money to do that. And in the meantime, people are suffering. So if you just give it to everyone, okay, maybe that the top 1%, right? They, they, they get it, whatever. They blow it, whatever, right? Mm. But you, then you just prevent missing people that would really, that can benefit it, benefit from it. And let's be clear here. There are people that make over 75,000 in 2019 that are hurting in 2021, right? So this means testing thing, I'm not for it. And I know, I personally know people that were very well off in 2019, the beginning of 2020, that have to take mortgage, like liens on their house, just to get by. So I think we have to be very careful when we throw out means testing because who are you to, to decide what someone's going through? My circumstance is not your circumstance. Mm-hmm. And your circumstances is not the gentleman that's sleeping on concrete. That's his, that's his circumstance. And so this means testing, I'm definitely not for it. If you are an American from 18 until the day you die, you get $1,000 a month. We back tax it, the 1% finally pays their fair share in taxes through the whole production menu, like the whole production, they get taxed through and through. They can't move money. They can't hide it. They have to, they can't outsource it because no company outside of the, you know, they're going to, going to take their company. So they, so they, so they pay their fair share. Pay, mm-hmm. I should not be paying more as a teacher than Jeff Bezos. I resent it actually. Yeah. How am I a school teacher paying more than Jeff Bezos? Oh, it's not liquid money. Well, income tax him. We have to change the tax code. Trickle down economics doesn't work. Trickle down economics doesn't work. No, you're trickle that money right up. Start from the bottom, trickle that up. And this is important to note in when the, the housing market crashed, I read through many economy papers and they all said, had Obama given people money, people will recover faster. Fast forward to 2020, December of 2020, I was under the freeway overpass talking to a gentleman experiencing homelessness. And he said, I've been on the street since the housing crash. Oh, wow. I have been, I, I haven't been able to recover. So there, so I just say that when we're like, there needs to be an urgency when there's these big crises. Giving people money solves a lot of problems. It really does. Like I'm interested to see how Texas maneuvers. Yeah, I you know, like I don't know how they're going to. Like I mean, what happened was catastrophic. It's a humanitarian issue. So well, so I'm glad you brought up Texas because 
I saw that part of your platform is climate change. So for me, it's very interesting seeing Texas right now because, you know, Texas right now is essentially a case study for anybody who pays some political science on mm-hmm. why small government is a failure, right? They literally privatized all of the basic necessities that that state has needed. And for an inch of snow the first time around, uh, the company, I think it's Aircop, I can't think of the actual name of it, but they decided that they were going to cut off electricity because it was going to be too expensive to continue to run, and they would have only kept it up if the the, the leadership of the state had established that it was a... Um, uh, 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 I can't, I just lost my words. Uh, that, that it was a national... It was, it was a state emergency, uh, right? So in California, we we saw wildfires last year that were ridiculous. Um, I, can, I keep seeing photos where the sky looked like they had bars in the background who just completely red, right? Uh, speak a little bit to us about, you know, your your, your viewpoint on climate change, the of addressing it, um, and why climate change is, a, a, is an economic and race justice issue as well. It is. And um, yes, I'm I'm a science teacher. I teach math and science. So obviously, I believe climate change is real. And I care very deeply about this. I think take if you even if you don't believe in climate change, it, it creates jobs, because we need new infrastructure. So I just think that there, there is money to be made in, in going this route. Um, I am for the Green New Deal. Um, it is a trillion dollar idea, but I think if we can finesse it and um, put tech on it, like some tech opportunities on it, I think it could be very lucrative, like bring in more money than what I've read it a few times. And I am always dreaming of like, how can we, how can we create jobs out of this? Because I think we need to create jobs. Whatever we do, there needs to be job creation within that. And in my, in my opinion, right. But I think that um, if we don't address climate change, you think Texas is expensive. That's like now take that and multiply it by 50 states plus Puerto Rico. Right. So, so we, we really, really need to, um, uh, think about the economic costs if we, if we don't, if you, that's just if you don't believe in climate change. Now, if we go to the animal aspect, you know, migration animals, all that stuff is important, you know, and they like bees, like bees are on the verge of extinction. Well, if we, if bees become, go extinct, then now we have a farming problem and then we have a food crisis, you know I mean? So it's, so we're, it's all interconnected. We're all in this together from insects to, you know, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's, it's very intimate, I guess is a good word, right? So if we, if we kill off all of these um, pollinators and if we don't address, um, okay, oh, one more thing, not to digress, but like going back to Texas, just because I think this is a better, clearer example, so this happened and then it just cut off all farming. It cut off all shipment to get, you know, bring food into the state. So now you have days of people not having access to food, right? But had they addressed their, their electricity grid problem back 11, I think it was like 10 or 11 years ago. Now we wouldn't have the starvation, this food price problem, a gasoline problem. So um, I think it just also disrupts the way that our systems work, you know what I mean? And also to like, um, 
I've been in LA for quite some time now and the fires just started over the last couple of years and it, it, and it has huge damage. Like it's just an, it's just like, it's just like, it's obvious that something's not right. That I went to Belize and I went scuba diving, all the coral reef was dead. And the guy, the scuba guy was like, Oh, you're 10 years too late. Right. Wow. So when we look at our oceans and we look at just the, our planet, like just the, it's, 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 it's obvious, right? Like you can't look at like, there's like a coral reef documentary on um, Netflix and it really showed like this guy was like tracking it for over like every year and every year it just, the, the, the ocean life just is depletes and depletes and then what? You know, and so we, we do, we, we need to take it seriously. And I think it's an opportunity to create jobs. I, I really do. Because manufacturing is not coming back, right? It's just not. Like whoever thinks it is, is not. It's, it is not. It's not coming no, back. It, it's not. Honestly, back. honestly, you know, there's a lot of cities across this country. Um, and I'm sure there's cities like this in, in, in California as well that were big boom. They had big booms when we were heavy in industrialism. Um, for us, the closest city that we know about is Baltimore. Um, Baltimore was <laughs> very much an industrial city. Baltimore has not really had any industry since then. Um, and we see how that trickles down because when you take out an entire industry, poverty happens and that leads to issues as far as education, et cetera, et cetera. And just um, water. Look at, look at it. Like, it, the, like so Flint. now Flint, <laughs> And in Texas, they have to boil water because the treatment facilities were down. So then it affects water. So like, so you're, if you just look at your basic needs, food, water, shelter, they have none of it. Well, they will. I think the power might be back on as we're filming this or the way you, when you, when, I don't know when you publish it or not, but it should be back on, but they went without food, water, shelter, your basic needs. Right. Texas was, Texas was completely a a manufacturing disaster and, and it's going to continue to be one until it is, until you know hopefully something changes because of this maybe they see hey maybe we don't need to privatize everything maybe maybe we need government regulation in our, in our power people grid people in the office if that's going to ever change I mean the guy literally said the strong will for, or survive and the weak will perish I'm sick of hand me outs Ted Cruz I listened to his interview yesterday you know what a what a reckless interview he literally said we we, we don't need a you know we don't want our gas prices to go up and the the, the, the reporter was like yeah I don't think they want to go without food either people are freezing like 30 um, 30 people from the last time I looked has died. Children died. And you're worried about a $20 increase in your electricity bill or whatever we 20, 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. Like, come on. Like they just, they, they, they're so worried about saving a buck or two at the expense of humanity because they look at us like we're disposable. That's what, you know, that's, that's what this is. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I, this question I'm going to give you is not so much related to any of your, your policies or your platform, but it's kind of related to uh, your role in getting involved in civic engagement. Um, mm-hmm. I personally feel as though there's, we can look back, I, I could look back at being in school and I, I took a U.S. government class in high school and that was an honors class and that was great, mm-hmm. but I, I think that a lot of the framing of, of how we teach 
uh, things that are important to the how the country is ran needs to be improved. Uh, uh, the conversation around taxes. All right. So I, I know, and we probably all know a bunch of people who moved to Texas because it's so cheap. You get so much house for moving to Texas, et cetera. But now we can see that Texas is cheap because they don't put any money into the basic necessities to live. Um, you're a teacher, so you can speak to education and, and, and educating on civic engagement to a degree. How important is that when talking to people that are trying to get to vote for you and getting to understand that, you know what, taxes can be a great thing when they're benefiting and improving your life. And the question is, are you paying taxes for things that will benefit your life? So could you speak to like what that's like in, when you're out on kind of the beating path and talking to people about things that they may, may or may not really know that much about? Well, California pays a lot in taxes. This is true. This <laughs> is so, true. so it's it's very different than Texas. And we have, you know, different programs. And I think most people, um, not all, but there's a lot of most people um, pay their they pay for these because there is this sense of humanity that um, that people care about innately in California and specifically in my district. I mean, when I, before I even filed, I asked, I literally spent two months asking people like, what is your number one issue? And addressing homelessness and poverty was like the number one issue that they don't want people sleeping on concrete. They don't want people in encampments and, and believe that they deserve to be housed, right? So so I don't think it's a matter of convincing um, people about taxation because we know taxation. I think people want to see like the programs work, efficiently work. And I think so sometimes I think we can't be afraid to try something and when it doesn't work, try something else. And so like UBI, for example, is has the potential to be bipartisan, right? And to, like stereotypically, conservatives don't like hand me outs. Like they might view it as like a hand me out. And I often say, well, what if we did it for two years? And we'll see, and we can see how it impacts everyone's life. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think when I talk to people personally, I always try to find common ground and um and solution. I'm a very solution-driven person, but I think that's how I I approach um, policy and um, why we should invest in certain things. Um, and people seem to think that's fair. I think people are open to that. And I think people in my districts um, particularly want um, our country to come together. Um, now, to your question about government and schools, I think it's a huge misstep that we don't um, make sure that when kids are leaving, they have a fundamental understanding of government. So it is on my website, this is that I've dedicated, like the kids have a voice too. It's all about them getting involved in government and their community. So it's like three pillars. The first pillar is I'm committed to going to the local schools and talking to kids about the issues that they care about. And then I talk to them about how that turns into policy. So that's my responsibility as an elected, if I were elected official, how I need to manage because I have a responsibility to make sure they understand how the process works. The second thing is having a town hall where kids run it and we as the adults listen. So let's say environment is their issue. 
Well, now that so the teacher has an, a learning opportunity, they have an elected official, if I were elected behind them, and then they do a full-blown pre- presentation on how to address climate change in a meaningful way in their community. And then they present it. And then we can maybe have a local business fund sandwiches. So that you bring in the local businesses and they could partner up. So that's another thing. And then the third part is a PSA where the kids create a PSA and then I use my platform to elevate their voices and whatever their political um, standing is. And then I I have publicly said that I would um, allow my local office to be a field trip opportunity for kids so they can learn about government and what I do and how they can get involved and, and have it be like literally a tour through the office and what we do and, and obviously make it fun and engaging. And so I think when we invite kids into the political space, they become activists, they become community organizers, they become future elected officials because our responsibility is cultivating the next generation of leaders. I'm for term limits. My butt's not going to sit up there till I'm 100 years old. Right. I need to ensure that we pass the baton and that they're equipped to make good policy decisions that's rooted in the in the betterment of society. And so we have to invite them into that space. And I'm also for lowering the voting age to 16 and then and then having. Oh, yeah. And then having um, actually the, the year before. Their government teacher shows them how to vote, how to read the, the ballot, understanding the language of propositions, doing a mock trial. There's like all these really cool mock trial programs where the kids actually do the whole election cycle. Because how do we expect kids to know how to vote if we don't teach them? That's true. How- how do you read the pamphlet? How do you research candidates? Why is local government so essential? When we talk about policing, that's a local government issue. When we talk about school funding, for the most part, that's local. And so that's why that's important. And if we get kids in at an early age and they understand the system and then they do a mock trial of it and they practice voting and then they turn 16 and vote, now they're, they're registered to vote. We register them to vote and now they become lifelong voters. And so we have to start changing how we look at civic engagement. And it starts with young, when you're young. Honestly, like that was like the most, like I've been doing this policy stuff for a little bit of time now. That was like the most wonderful answer ever. (laughs) Um, I think I'm excited for you to win. And I'm going to tell you why. Q can speak to this. I think Greg can as well. Here in D.C., we don't have a choice but to understand local politics yep. because we, we've we been getting taxed without being able to actually have a vote in Congress forever, right? So, but I, some, some of us got our first jobs thanks to a local government program, thanks to Marion Barry. We learned how to uh, understand the importance of, oh, this is a local person. They're doing things from my specific area, ANC committee meetings, things of that nature. So when you get to D.C., because you're going to win, when you get to D.C., make sure you talk to us. Yes. Because there's some things here that I feel as though that have been implanted since forever that you can take wherever you go from this point forward, start start the people as, as early as you want to, and it'll be a great thing. I, I'll, I'm going to let them speak forward, too, but I, I think that would be great. Thank you. What did you have to say, Q? Because I can see his gears turning right now. No, 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 no. I <laughs> no, I, I like everything you said. I, I, I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited. 
I wish I was in California 30 to vote for you. Thank um, you. And imagine if we taught our black and brown kids that are at the poverty level the power of government mm-hmm. at a young age, mm-hmm. how powerful that that changes the whole political landscape. It's no longer the 1%. Like we didn't even touch on the campaign finance. We can talk all night about that. But that's why it makes it impossible to take out incumbents because of the money, the big money. Mm-hmm. I don't know if um, Greg told you, but um, I filed after George Floyd and I announced literally the Monday after Juneteenth. And from June, from so from June twenty second to now, as a grassroots candidate, I've raised over seventy thousand dollars. Right, and you would think like, wow, that's so amazing. It is amazing, and I'm very grateful. But then you look at my incumbent, who has two point five million in cash, cash on hand, big bank, big corporation, corporate packs, all that stuff, mm-hmm. and it's like. <sighs> Like, how do you compete with that? How can you, how, right, right. How can you compete with that? Right. Um, I, oh, when this is published, I'm doing a diary on Daily Coast. We're going to get you some exposure out there. Um, and because we need more, honestly, we need more people with this type of voice. Those who really, like, are for the people and want to see the people to see and not the corporations or the or the top one percent or Jeff Bezos or all these other idiots who are taking all this money and doing nothing with it. Yeah, philanthropy is fine, but yeah, that's like okay, you give two hundred you give two hundred million to something. Okay, that's like ten cents to us. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um so yeah we, we we definitely need and, we definitely need more progressives. We need more the, those that really care about the people and really want the people to succeed. So. That's why, like, like democracy dollars, you know, mm-hmm. where everyone. Okay, so okay, guys, it's election season. Everybody gets a hundred dollars. You donate to the candidates that you like, and let the chips fall as they may. Make incumbents earn it because that seat's not yours. That's the people. Mm-hmm. You're not that. That's you're not entitled to that seat. That belongs to us. That belongs to the community. And and that's the mindset that it has to have. Like Ted Cruz felt so comfortable to go to Cancun. Right? Yeah. And his wife works for Goldman Sachs. It's like representation gets to change when we take big money out of politics. Mm-hmm. And when you've been on the hill for so long, you no longer can relate to the gentleman that's under the freeway overpass. Or the mom that, you know, is struggling to put you, whatever, like whatever the sad story is, right? You can't relate to that if you're, if you're, if a career politician and in in democracy dollars and range choice voting gives people like me, a teacher, an opportunity to serve because that's what it is. It's a service. I'm serving my community and I can leave after 10 years. As I said, I'm only doing five terms and then the next person gets a turn to serve. And then I can go back into teaching. I want to be a professor after, right? So, mm-hmm. like, I think we have to change what representation looks like. Mm-hmm. Beto showed representation, not Ted Cruz. And also, and that's exactly why Congress needs to pass HR one, and that's 
the the John Lewis voting rights John, voting rights uh, I forgot what the whole name is but we need that's why HR one S one needs to be passed it needs to be passed immediately we need to get big money out of politics we need to get big money out of elections we need to make it more transparent and we need to make the process of voting of exercising the franchise easier for everyone to exercise. There's no reason why electionation electionation should be a national holiday. Electionation should be a national should be a national holiday. And we need to get rid of this rid of, rid of these onerous policies and voter ID and all that. Just when when you go to get a damn like driver's license on ID you should be automatically registered to vote. Forget all this other crap. Like when you get a when you get your driver's license, you get an ID, you gotta prove your identity, right? Why can't that be the gold standard of voter registration? Of making of getting people registered to vote. They've already proven their identity. They haven't used the government gave them a driver's license, gave them and gave them an, a, a non-driver's ID. Let that be it. And 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 call it a day. Cool. Sorry, this is my. Sorry, that was my dad. I thought my phone was on silent. Oh. That was a. I thought, that, I thought it was an agreement, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I feel like we have to do a part two because there's a lot of things we didn't touch on. We didn't touch on affordable housing. We, there's so much more that we have to like talk about. Yeah. We talk about your, your relationship with uh, Reverend Wendy Hamilton. Um, she is Who's you know, running in your district, and she's exactly. like, yeah. So we, yeah, we she's she's that. running in DC, and she's extraordinary. She's one of my really good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we have very similar platforms. Um, I'm thinking we're going to be the dangerous duo when we get elected, and DC should be a state. And she is is relentless about that, and she's definitely for universal basic income, and um, and we just have very similar policies. Um, and I just think. Like, I don't know how you guys feel about term limits, but I, I do think that we need to find a way to get new voices in. Like, I, I just I just feel like we have like that. That's something very near and dear to my heart is like we need to change it up. And also, too, we need to also focus on bipartisanship because this lack of bipartisanship is why nothing gets done. You know, something that I really want to pride myself on is being able to work across the aisle, mm-hmm. being able to sit down and talk to someone that maybe disagrees with me, but we can find common ground because that's why the stimulus doesn't get passed. That's mm-hmm. why all these things just don't get passed because they, we just can't find common ground. We have to learn to talk to each other and model for young kids what it looks like to be able to respectfully agree to disagree, civil discourse, like all these very important life skills. So anyway, yeah, it definitely has to be like, I'm happy to come back if you guys want me to come back. Um, I really appreciate the conversation. You guys are awesome what you're doing and giving, and then my race is historic. We've never had a black woman. We've never had a woman. I'm biracial, I'm Asian and black. We've never had any of that representation. And so this is a historic race. And so thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak to these things. Thank you for actually coming. You're very very new. You're very welcome. You're very welcome, man. I, I say, I'm excited about your candidacy. Um, and 
I just I need to know what can we I, I know. Listen, I I'm, on the, I'm on the hill every year. Yeah, we, we definitely definitely I'm, have a you know a, a more conversations need to be had because there's yeah. a lot of things that we we didn't get really get to you know we didn't get to touch, but yeah. definitely definitely. But, I'm on, I'm on the hill every year, so doing what? You know, when you're there, what are you doing? So I work. I work with a uh, lobbying advocacy group that primarily works uh, on behalf of HBCUs. We bring students at HBCUs uh, to learn them, learn how to pretty much get involved into the civic engagement process, teach them how to lobby, and then we put them in front of their representatives in Congress and help help teach them how to lobby and advocate for policies that benefit their schools while they're there and, you know, for when they become alumni. Um, and with the hope that eventually we'll get more people who look like us in many of those uh, internships and those opportunities on Capitol Hill because uh, there's not a lot of us that are there. So I, I'm excited. Uh, I, I'm, willing to look, I'm willing to work with you. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the team that I work with. So that's where a lot of my questions came from. I was like, okay. There's mm-hmm. more people that we can work with and get some things done. So definitely, I'm excited. Thank you. So is there a way that our listeners can actually assist and to help you? Like, is there a website that they can go to? Donate, donate. <laughs> Become a recurring donor. Um, that's like, that's been godsend that we've gotten a lot of recurring donors. But um, ericaforcongress.com. And my name is spelled with two A's. So A-A-R-I-K-A for Congress. Um, are you on Act Blue? Yes. So all the links and my platform, it's all on our website. And events, we do webinars every month. Um, so people are, even if you don't live in the district, it's education's priceless. Knowledge is power, right? So you can always jump on. And we're doing a universal basic income one tomorrow, actually. So with Scott Santins, who's like the guru of um, of UBI, he actually is working with Ilhan right now on um, legis- UBI legislation and okay. the um, stimulus relief. So um, I have great guests all the time. So visit ericaforcongress.com. That's great. We'll do that. We'll make sure definitely we do that. tweet and plug that all over the place. Yes. Thank you. So we're definitely going to have a part two and possibly a part three because I feel like we have to have it more. Um, 2021 is the year to get things done. Uh, but I wanted to, again, just say thank you for coming on. You know, thank you for actually, you know, introducing, your, introducing yourself on Clubhouse the way that you did, because that's a platform in itself that is a great form of communicating properly to people that's not in, you know, 240 characters. And the way that you came in and I learned something and everybody else learned something, it was just amazing. So I'm going to continue to follow. I'm going to continue to support. And I hope that our listeners do the same. So, Thank you. Um, do you want to share your social media pages? So usually what I do is I let like the co-host do it and then you can go forward, but it's up to you. Okay. It's the links because everyone has a different one, but the links are all on my website. But I'm on Twitter, it's Erica Rhodes. Instagram, Erica for Congress. Facebook is Erica for Congress. Clubhouse is Erica Rhodes. <laughs> That's I was a teacher that filed, so nothing's like the same. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's all linked on my website. Absolutely. You can get in touch with me through there. Okay. And again, listeners, everything will be in the show notes as well. All links, all social medias, as well as the way to actually follow Erica and donate because we will be donating on behalf of the uh, both of the uh, podcasts. So we have Bombs to Pod, which Thank is you. 
podcast and we have young black and bothered podcast so you know until the next episode i cannot wait to see what you have in store so until then see you guys